Hey everybody, I'm Siobhan Palmer, and welcome to the Estrogen Express. Hop aboard as we deliver real, raw, and unfiltered content to help us navigate the business of life. We're in this together, ladies. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is your um, host, Siobhan Palmer. This week, I'm so excited about our topic. We're talking about financial literacy and helping women reach their financial goals. It's a major, major topic that we're going to be exploring more in 2021. And I am so excited about our guest. Um, she is an advocate, a wealth strategist, a leader, just a great lady. Um, Jennifer Gist is the owner and wealth advisor for Compass Wealth Solutions. And after more than two decades in the financial services industry, she started her own practice to be able to take advantage of cutting edge tools and products and services to offer her clients customized solutions that they truly deserved. She's a trusted partner to each of her clients, and she has this intense focus and desire to see their life dreams come true. Jennifer is currently pursuing her graduate law degree at Texas A&M School of Law in Wealth Management. When she's not in the office, she can be found enjoying outdoor activities with her son, Cooper, spending time with friends and family and exercising. Jennifer, welcome to the Estrogen Express, girlfriend. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're, you're hopping on the train here, and we're going to talk about such an important topic for women. And that's why I wanted to reach out to somebody like you with such a um, comprehensive background. But before we get talking about the topic, Jennifer, I always like to introduce our audience to our guests. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? I actually grew up here in Texas. I grew up in a small town called Brock, Texas. It's just west of Weatherford. And I was pretty much there my whole uh, childhood before I went to college. We did live in Amarillo for a short period of time. Otherwise, my mom is still on the property that I was raised on. And so we still call that home. Oh, wow. And uh, what was your childhood like? Were you out on property? It sounds like you might have been out in a rural community. Did you did you raise animals? What was your childhood like? Yeah, I actually had a pretty eclectic childhood. I um, I did raise animals. Um, we did not show in 4-H or anything like that, but we rodeoed. And so in high school, I, you know, roped calves and tied goats and did all those fun rodeo activities, as well as I was a very uh, competitive basketball player. So um, when I wasn't studying or pursuing academics, you could normally find me either in the arena with my horse or at a basketball game. Oh. And um, my mom still lives on the 40 acres we're raised at. We still go back there. Um, my young son, Cooper, he enjoys fishing and shooting guns and all those kind of things. So we still spend a lot of time outside. That's awesome. Um, who were major influences in your life, Jennifer, uh, growing up? You know, it's interesting. I, I have so many. Um, Honestly, Siobhan, I've been blessed with great mentors and um, people who have loved me enough to provide wise counsel to me. I mean, obviously my parents, um, my uh, mom who's still alive, my dad deceased five years ago, um, were just instrumental um, role models and helpful to me in so many ways. I had a high school teacher who recently passed away. His name was Mr. Fuller. Um, he taught all the science classes at my school, and he was an amazing mentor. And then as I, as I matured and went through college, I worked at, as a veterinary assistant for a man named Dr. Olson uh, because I was pursuing um, a degree in animal science and had planned to be a veterinarian, actually. And he became just such a instrumental part of my um, 
my youth and in mentoring and directing me in that field. And, and then now in the profession that I'm in now, Clarence Goforth, who is um, probably kind of become a surrogate dad to me, um, but has been a mentor for so many years, teaching me the fundamentals um, that I needed to be able to master and practice to be good at my craft. And now um, it's interesting because he was always the person that I turned to throughout um, my youth in the industry, if you will. Um, and now that I've pursued the degree that I'm pursuing, we, we tease a lot that now the tables have turned and he calls me for advice. So in some ways, I guess we have um, swapped roles, but Clarence nonetheless has just been an important factor in my life. Oh, I love it. Well, before just quickly going back, you went to uh, Tarleton University, which is a terrific school. So why did you, I think you got a BS in animal science. Why did you not pursue becoming a vet? Well, that's another interesting story. So actually, I was at A&M um, in College Station, finishing up my last couple years of school. Um, so I started at Tarleton, and then I went to A&M to do my junior and senior year, uh, pursuing being a large animal vet. And I was a senior um, in the pre-veterinary medicine program there. And Dr. Olson, who I mentioned earlier, and I were having a really great conversation and he just expressed a concern about me continuing to pursue large animal medicine. Um, he, the way he put it is not every horse is Mr. Ed. And he had a real concern about me, you know, being injured, um, working on large animals. And, and subsequently, in addition to that, he really felt like the lifestyle that I wanted, because he knew me well, um, to have some freedom and time to do things with my family and be able to invest, at, be a mother as well as a career person. It's very challenging to do that as a vet. So um, he encouraged either I transition to small animal medicine or that I consider another field. And so um, through a lot of a time and energy and, and thought, I made the decision that I was going to pursue the area of finance instead. So I was one credit short of graduating from A&M. So I transferred all my credits back to Tarleton and graduated from there um, so that I could go ahead and begin starting this new career, which is the one I have stayed in since. Wow. Well, growing up, um, were you taught the value of money from your parents and other the mentors that you've mentioned? Was money always in the forefront of your mind or did you really know the value of um, a dollar? No, not really. I will say that um, I've always been a saver um, to the point that my mom and dad would raid my, you know, my little savings jar when I was a little kid <laughs> and leave me IOUs in there. So, you I know, I've definitely that. always been a saver and I've always been um, someone that likes, I'm very black and white and I've got a strategic mind, um, but I never thought of pursuing finance at all. Um, I was good in accounting in school and things like that, but um, really, my passion for uh, finance and, and helping people with money happened post that conversation in school. And what I learned was, as I was researching and deciding the direction I wanted to go, is that most of the wealthy people in this country can find great financial advice. But it is very challenging for um, the, tr the, the regular person, the person that's been working 30 or 35 years to amass some wealth, it's very challenging for them to get really great advice. And we see um, many industries taking advantage of their lack of information. And so I became very passionate about um, providing high level quality of advice, regardless of the asset that the client was bringing to the table. Wow. And obviously, as my business has gotten bigger, I've had to segregate that to some degree, just because you can't, 
um, do all things for all people, but I definitely recognize and still see the concerns in the industry. We've got a lot of people that enter our, our industry that um, really come off the street and have no knowledge and don't ever become anything more than just salespeople. And then we have people in our industry that focus on the insurance side of things, sometimes to the detriment of the client's ultimate success financially. So I just had a passion for helping people and it naturally matched up with my ability to strategize and work numbers. That's so interesting. Let, let me ask you, what are unique situations that you found with female clients in terms of achieving their financial security? Well, that, that is actually a great question because early in my career, so I started in this industry when I was um, in my 20s. Um, I think I was 21 when I got my first investment license and definitely working in a man's industry for sure. Um, so what I had to do really early on as a professional woman is I had to become far more knowledgeable than my male counterparts. And I think that that same issue extends over to my female clients in that I think we have to make it imperative to get truly financially literate um, because just trusting that someone else is going to handle it for us or just handling our bills day to day and making sure we're managing the day to day expenses is not financial planning. I see significant issues in the women's market with overspending um, and, and, and in one area specifically, and that is overspending on the children. Um, and when you think about the prioritization of your retirement and your financial security ab above your child's um, college planning or cars or needs that they have, sometimes that's very tough for women to do. Um, I think not prioritizing savings is a big issue. Um, not if they're married, not getting really actively involved with the financial planning, or sometimes I actually see the reverse with women. Sometimes I see the women trying to handle everything for the finances, um, which I, I think a couple, if, if you're married, should do it together. Um, I, I'm a big proponent of that. And when I meet with my clients, I meet with the husband and wife together. Um, and then, and I know we may talk about this in a little bit, unfortunately, divorce is a big hit for women. Um, financially. So um, helping counsel them through that and helping them to make wise choices throughout that process and after I think is imperative uh, because many times, especially in a divorce, um, and we may talk about mine a little bit, but we get to the point where we just want it to be over so bad that we'll almost agree to anything. And so I see women um, agree to things that they absolutely shouldn't have, or they take over finances or money that they have, they have no, um, education to handle. So those are probably the biggest areas. Yeah, this is such critical information you're talking about. Um, I actually have a very close friend who went through a rough divorce years ago, and she signed over 50% of her 401k to the ex-husband, but he sat on it. He's letting it accrue for the last 20 years. And, you know, she's getting past retirement age, and now he's showing up wanting the but just as you said, she was so traumatized by the marriage and the divorce, she just wanted to get it over with and under duress or just simply fear and not having someone like you to kind of hold her hand and make the right decisions. 
you know, it potentially could be catastrophic for her. So um, let's, you had ref uh, mentioned your own divorce and um, thank you if you're willing to share your story. So what actually happened? You went through a tough divorce that essentially started, did you have to start over financially? What happened? Yeah, I'm actually went through a really tough divorce. Um, I was married for 14 years and I had filed for divorce um, several years prior and then was convinced to um, give it another try. And I don't know how many of your listeners have been in bad marriages or in my case, I was married to a highly manipulative um, narcissistic personality. Wow. And so he was um, able to, you know, say all the right things and do all the right things and got me convinced to stay. So I stayed another, gosh, I think it was another five years after that. And then I filed again, uh, because in, in truth, um, you probably are never going to change a manipulative narcissist. So um, when I filed, um, I did what I thought was the right thing. I provided him with documentation of all the finances because he allowed me to handle all the money. And I provided all the details. I told him that I wanted, you know, a very amicable divorce. I wanted us to be able to co-parent. I told him he could choose any visitation that he wanted. He could, I didn't need child support. He could take half of the assets and half of the things. I just wanted us to try to um, not give all the money to the attorneys. And um, in fact, that's pretty much what happened. So the second that I filed, he, or the second that I asked for the divorce, he immediately wiped out as many accounts as he could get his hands on before I could get the divorce papers filed, um, left me and my son with very little assets. Um, and, you know, in, in the cash reserve assets I'm talking about, Right. Uh, we, we were selling a home during that time. So we sold that home. And I don't I hope this has not ever happened to one of your listeners, but this is a very important topic. So if you're in the midst of a divorce and you sell a home, which we did, I took half of the proceeds of that and I gave that to my ex-husband. I took the other half and I went and bought another home. But under the law, we were not divorced yet. So what he then turned around and did is forced me to sell that home and split any proceeds again with him because under the law that was acquired during the marriage. Wow. And so I had to then sell the home we had just moved to. And of course, for a significant loss because of, um, you know, selling it so quickly after buying it and take what little bit of equity was in there and split again. So, you know, it's, a, it's just a very disastrous situation. And what attorneys will do during this time is they're very well trained and equipped to make sure that people work against each other because the more time that it takes to get a divorce and the more arguing that there is historically, the longer the divorce takes and the more billable hours they get. Oh, exactly. so we spent about $135,000 in legal fees. Wow. We didn't finally get the divorce. And I will tell you, Siobhan, in my case, I don't, th I think I would have actually had to start over from zero had it not been the fact that I finally got fed up enough that I called my ex-husband and I said to him, listen, I can recover from zero, but you will never recover from zero. So you can continue to behave this way and we can continue to go back and forth and the attorneys are gonna get it all. They're gonna be able to send their kids to private schools. They're gonna drive fancy cars and live in gated communities and you're going to have nothing. So we can continue this and give it all to them or we can get a divorce and you can take what little bit is left on your side and have a chance to have some financial security in the future. And once I took that power away from him, that was when we finally made progress and I was able to get a divorce after that. 
Oh my God, that's amazing. So then you started building from there. You said that, you know, you had some assets, but they weren't um, liquid or cash. So when you started, once you got rid of this ex-husband, what was your journey from there professionally and personally? You know, it's actually been amazing. So I was, you know, in my early 40s during that time of getting the divorce and you know and i know many women can relate to this you know being in your 40s or 50s and going through a divorce and feeling like you're starting over and um, i definitely felt that way matter of fact not long after the divorce was final um, the decision was made and the courts terminated my ex-husband's parental rights and so not only was i now starting over financially but i had a little boy who um, had lost his father and um he was he needed me you know and so i as many women i know feel i just really didn't have a choice Um, i had to pull myself up by my bootstraps and um, as i tell people all the time put my big girl panties on and go figure this thing out and fortunately i serve an amazing god and um doors opened and one of those doors was to transition and take my my business completely independent and start my own firm. And I did that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just not a quitter. And I knew that I had to, I had to succeed despite what had happened to me. And so that's what I set out to do. Thank you for your candor. This is an incredible story and so motivating. So for women that would come to you, uh, couples um, as new clients, can you walk through Jennifer, you know, not all the technicalities, everything, obviously, because you sit down as the expert and so forth, but how would you approach somebody who came to you as a new client in term, you know, do you have a minimum number of assets they need to work with you? And what, what are some of the procedures you walk through with somebody who is, is coming to you for help to get some financial security in place? I think um, this might, the best way to explain this is that financial planning, as we think about it, or investment planning are very, very different things. So I run my practice on four key components. So investment planning, you asked about the assets that they would need to bring. That's one component of a great financial um, relationship, right? The second is financial planning. The third would be financial organization. Um, This is a key component that I focus on. I don't think enough advisors do a good enough job with because if the financial CEO or CFO of the home is either in a car accident or unavailable or passes away, it can lead to a lot of chaos with regards to financial, where where things are, access to those accounts, um, ability to uh, find all the assets, know where they are, beneficiaries, et cetera. Um, And then the fourth component is guidance. And that is a continued relationship where on a regular basis for some people quarterly, some people semi-annually, some people maybe annually, we're revisiting those goals and we're tracking through the progress and we're making sure that no stone is left unturned. One of the things I know in my early part of my career that was very frustrating to me is I would have all these action items for my clients that I, that I knew were important to them, whether it be getting their estate documents in place or funding a college plan or whatever the case may be, doing legacy planning with their children if they're older. Um, and we would have all these open items and it seems like there was always a great intention to get them done, but we never quite, you know, it never got checked off the list. So I think that regular revisitation with specific specific goals in mind is, is so important. So I would say to your to your question is that I think that meeting with someone that's highly qualified and highly educated 
and having them put together a fully strategized and comprehensive customized plan is the first key component. And then from there, determining what's important from an investment planning standpoint, et cetera, becomes secondary. So I have clients that have started out just as financial planning clients. They just pay me on a fee basis to prepare their planning and to do and to provide their guidance for them. Um, and then I have others that um, do that. And then subsequently I end up handling all of their investments as well. And then I have some clients that are just investment only clients. So as a general rule of thumb, for my investment only clients, I like them to have at least a million dollars or more, but that does not always hold true because if, if they bring me in as their financial planner, I'm willing to take on far less assets. The reason why is because even broke people need help in order to become wealthy, right? Exactly. exactly. And so, so if they're willing to do the planning component, I'm willing to work with them on the investment component. If they're not willing to do the planning component, the chances are they're never going to become successful financially if they're starting with low assets. Does that really make sense to you what I'm trying to explain? Absolutely. And you know, another thing is, why is money such a difficult topic, Jennifer? It's almost like, you know, sex and politics. People are so reticent. And I think having a financial planner that you can, uh, it's such an intimate relationship. It's kind of like a doctor relationship and so forth or accountant, but somebody that you can trust that has your best interest in mind, you know, for you to succeed, especially when it comes to women. I think women um, many times defer to their husband or significant other, and they I don't want to deal with that, but it ends up biting them in the butt down the road and not yeah. being fully aware of their financial situation and so forth. It's, it, it can be a problem. Yes. So, you know, I think this day, I don't know the right word, but the concern people have about talking about finances has minimized over the years. You know, um, much of my, many of my much older clients, they're a little bit more um, hesitant to want to share openly if I meet them later in life. Um, my, um, you know, 40s, 30s and 40s clients seem to be a little bit more open with their finances with me. But what I encourage people to do is to sit down, to find a trusted relationship, um, you know, someone that you feel like you can really trust and go through a discovery process with them. Um, I do that on a complimentary basis with people where I'll sit down with them and we'll talk a lot before we even share finances about where they want to go, where there's gaps in their planning, what some of their goals and dreams are. And then we'll begin once we feel like there's a trusted relationship there and it's something that um, I can facilitate, then we'll begin to share numbers. And I think that that's a great way to kind of overcome that concern. Um, in my case, I've been managing a lot of my clients' money for 15 or 20 years. And when I call them for something, they just want to talk to me about how my little boy is doing <laughs> because they're going to pretty much, you know, whatever I tell them to do, they're going to do it because I've been doing it for so long. Yeah, and they trust you. Exactly. Exactly. And so, but that trust had to start somewhere. And so I think that one of the areas that I focused on very diligently and maybe most likely being a female, a young female in industry is I think I got really, really good at finding out what people needed and helping them solve for those problems and making them feel like they're doing that in a secure relationship and, and and then subsequently what that leads to is as they get older and their kids get older i manage the finances for most of my clients grown kids yeah um, multi-generations absolutely and we do legacy planning and all kinds of make make it more of a family 
um, affair. So, you know, I think the first key is to find somebody that actually is educated and informed in the industry, not just went out and got a license, but they actually know what they're doing and then build a trusted relationship. If you sit down with someone, an advisor, and the first thing they want to know is, let me see your statements or how much money do you have? Exactly. Um, I, is that a red flag? <laughs> I would respectfully leave that meeting, right? That, that, is, that should not be the way a meeting is started. And that's why I, I'm hesitant to even say the million dollar number because I have clients that I handle $100,000 for and they will get to that million dollar number, right? They will get there and, and, and beyond that. Um, but that's because they're working with me on a diligent plan exactly. to accomplish that. And it's, it's a, a trusted relationship. So Love I don't know if that answers the question fully, but Absolutely. I think trust is the key and, and getting a truly educated advisor is important, which is much of the reason why I pursued the, the degree plan that I've pursued. Cause I didn't really have to do that at, you know, 23 or 24 years in the industry. Right. Right. Well, I was, that was going to be my next question. I'm, I'm really intrigued. You're getting a master's in jurisprudence in wealth management from Texas A&M Law. Tell us, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Explain what that is. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I, once I transitioned over um, and became fully independent, I really wanted to, um, I wanted to add more value, right? And as I looked at the industry, I really found that what most people have done is they've uh, either entered this industry young or they've come into the industry later. They've gotten the necessary licensing, which is just a matter of, of you know, a testing process. Sometimes they've went through and gotten a few certifications, but most of us learn through doing, right? This exactly. is an industry that you mentor under someone and, and you learn over time. Well, I think as finances have gotten far more complex the markets have gotten more complex, the need for planning and quality strategic uh, advice in the areas of estate planning and tax planning, um, wealth management, all of uh, investment planning, all of those components. Um, the industry itself has actually outgrown the capacity of many of the advisors. Matter of fact, you see many of the older advisors just choosing to retire as opposed to scale up, right? And so what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to look just like the other guy. And so I researched and found this program through Texas A&M School of Law. And I decided that this was worth the time and energy to go and get this much higher education so that I could serve all of my clients and my future clients at a level that just isn't common in our industry. Right. You're staying ahead of everything, the evolving information. Absolutely. You know, I, I wanted, if someone came and met with me, I wanted them to have no options when they looked at my knowledge level and my ability to service their needs. Um, I, I wanted to uh, outshine any competition in that area. Right. And so um, secondarily to that, I have, am most likely going to acquire a couple of businesses over the next couple of years. I'm, look, I'm talking with a couple of people now. And when I start looking at firms that I'm going to purchase, uh, especially since most of those would be purchasing from male primary advisors, I thought it would be very important that when they looked at my history and experience and knowledge that they could see that they were providing their clients or they were passing their clients on to an advisor that had far more capabilities than even they had at that time. 
So I just wanted it to be one of those things that um, set me apart from the others in the industry and made me a key, comp a, a key competitor or a key contender to purchase those books. Fantastic information. Uh, Jennifer, um, we're almost uh, running out of time. I want to ask you a couple, two uh, more questions. I usually ask guests at the end of the, the podcast. How do you define success? You know, I think that's different in different areas of life. You know, there's, there's our, you know, our family life, our physical health life, our, our business life. And I think maybe each of those have a different definition, but ultimately I think as long as I'm continuing to improve as a person, um, I'm glorifying God in my actions and I'm always working to get better and to do better, both in my personal business, financial parenting life, then ultimately I will consider myself successful. And then finally, why don't you leave us with your favorite quote? This was a, f a fun one, you know, when you told me you wanted me to come up with this, because I'm going to be honest and tell you my actual honest favorite quote, and you're going to think this is funny. Give it to uh, us, girl. <laughs> my favorite quote is, no is a complete sentence. Oh, I love that. And, more and I heard that, funny yes. enough, from one of my Peloton instructors. <laughs> and when she said that, I was like, that is so important, especially for women. How, it's think, so profound. Absolutely. I, I think as women, we just take on too much. And I have learned to say no and just focus on the things that are truly important to me with myself, my family, my future, um, my clients' needs, and say no when no is necessary and not feel like I have to do all things and be all things for all people. That's got to be one of the favorite quotes I've heard this year, Jennifer. Jennifer, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just so many great nuggets of information. So if people are interested in getting um, in contact with you to have a consultation about your um, services, what's the best way to get a hold of you? You know, they can do a couple of things. Number one, they can just call our office, 817-717-9365. They can also go on my website at compasswealthsolutions.com, and there's a... Um, inquiry button at the bottom they can just put in their information it'll send me a note or they can always email me and my email is jen just j-e-n at compasswealthsolutions.com terrific jennifer thank you again ladies and gentlemen uh that's the end of our show for this week i'm siobhan palmer with the estrogen express podcast we'll see you next week and this train is leaving the station